This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news. Two American hostages have been released by Hamas. And any moment we expect to hear from the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, after a spokesman for the Israeli Prime Minister's office confirmed that Judith Renan and her 17-year-old daughter, Natalie, are now back from uh, the Gaza Strip. Let's listen in to Secretary of State Blinken. Held by Hamas since October 7th, uh, were released. Uh, these two Americans are now safely in the hands of Israeli authorities in Israel. We expect a team from the U.S. Embassy to uh, see them very shortly. Uh, over the coming hours, they'll receive any uh, support and assistance that they need. And, of course, we're very anxious to be able to reunite them with their loved ones. We welcome their release. We share in the relief that their families, friends, and loved ones are feeling. But there are still 10 additional Americans who remain unaccounted for uh, in this conflict. We know that some of them are being held hostage by Hamas, along with an estimated 200 other hostages uh, held in Gaza. They include men, women, young boys, young girls, elderly people from many nations. Every single one of them should be released. Since the early, earliest hours of this crisis, uh, the President has made clear that he will do everything possible to secure the release of every hostage. Uh, during my own recent travel to the region, I emphasized the urgency and importance of this to uh, the United States and pressed our partners to do everything they can uh, to help us secure the release. Uh, since that time, we've continued to work relentlessly with partners to do just that. I can't speak publicly about the details of, of these efforts. I know you understand that. But the urgent work to free every single American, to free all other hostages, continues, as does our work to secure the safe passage out of Gaza for the Americans who are trapped there. In this particular instance, uh, I want to thank the government of Qatar for their very important assistance. Um, when I was in Israel last week, I met with the families of U.S. citizens that Hamas has taken hostage. President Biden, too, had the opportunity to hear directly from the families. Uh, it's impossible to adequately put into words the agony they're feeling of not knowing the fate of their loved ones, worrying relentlessly about them, for their safety, for their security, for their well-being. No family anywhere should have to experience this torture. Uh, what I shared with the families, as the President did as well, is that the entire United States government will work every minute of every day to secure their release, to bring their loved ones home. They have my solemn pledge, those who continue to have loved ones held hostage by Hamas, that will continue to do that, working uh, as though these family members were our own. With that, I'm happy to take a few questions. Mr. Secretary. So, Thanks for coming down, Mr. Mr. Secretary. Um, I, I'm just—you said you couldn't talk about specific details, but I'm wondering. You did thank the government of Qatar, and I'm, I'm wondering since you were there, uh, and they have an office, they host a, a Hamas office. If you could elaborate a little bit on what their role was, and if you continue to think that that channel there, them having an office there, uh, is worthwhile. And then secondly, uh, a lot has been made by you, by the president, by other officials about um, how it is important for Israel once, if and when it begins a ground incursion 
into Gaza uh, for it to respect the uh, rules of war internationally. And, I, and I, I'm curious if you think that to date, even before that ground incursion has started, if Israel is respecting those uh, rules and laws. Thank you. Matt, thanks for the questions. Um, you'll understand that because this is an ongoing effort, an ongoing effort to get um, host uh, Americans who are hostage in this moment in Gaza out to secure their release to get them back with their families, I really can't go into uh, any details about um, uh, what we're doing, how we're doing it. And, and all I can say with regard to Qatar is, in this instance, uh, we very much appreciate their assistance. Uh, beyond that, I really can't. Uh, I really can't say because, again, we want to focus on making sure that we're getting those who remain hostage uh, back home and with their loved ones. That's the the, the single most important thing. Um, with regard to how Israel is conducting its operations, I think you've heard the president speak to this very clearly. You've heard me speak to this very clearly. Um, We've said, we believe strongly that Israel has not only the right, but the obligation to defend itself against what, it, what uh, it's very hard to put into words, the, the nature, the barbarity of the attacks. Uh, and they really do have the obligation to defend themselves against it, to do whatever they can to try to make sure that this doesn't happen again. But we've been very clear as well that the way Israel does this matters. And in particular, it's important that operations be conducted in accordance with international law, humanitarian law, the law of war, uh, as applicable, uh, and that everything be done to minimize the loss of uh, civilian life. Uh, and we continue uh, to, to focus on that, uh, just as we're also focusing on getting assistance into people in Gaza who, uh, who need it. Um, there will be plenty of time to make assessments about how these operations were, were conducted, but I can just say for the part of the United States that this continues to be important to us. And again, it's what distinguishes us, distinguishes Israel from terrorist groups like Hamas, which not only have absolutely no concern for, uh, for innocent human life, they intentionally use innocent human lives to hide behind, uh, to use as, uh, quite literally, as human shields, knowing that civilians invariably are going to suffer in, um, in conflict. Thanks. Secretary, uh, just following up on that, uh, Hamas has issued a statement through Abu Abida, uh, and I know with the huge caveat that it's a terror group mm -hmm. and one does not attach credibility to that, but they have said that all the hostages, the civilian hostages, mm -hmm. which include the Americans, could be released, that this could be the start of something bigger if there are no airstrikes. Would this be a moment where, if, if under Israel's discretion, obviously, it would be wise to pause, to give it more time, to see if this is a moment, since the ground invasion has not started, should even the airstrikes be stopped to see if you could get more people out? And it was notable, without going into details, that in the president's statement, he said uh, he expressed his thanks to Israel to Qatar, rather, in mm. partnership with Israel. A notable connection there. Um, the obvious inference is that they were working together on this. Does this give you hope that, despite everything that's happened, that there could still be a broader relationship and avoid a wider war? Mm. Uh, thanks, Andrea. Um, so 
two things there. Uh, first, it's very simple. Um, hostages should be released immediately and unconditionally. That's been our position from day one. It remains our position. And, and to your point, um, I would uh, not take anything that uh, Hamas says at face value. Uh, I'm not sure anyone in this room would uh, take at face value or report something that ISIS had said. Same applies to, to Hamas. Uh, our position is clear. Every hostage needs to be released and needs to be released now. Um, there is no doubt from my own, my own travels in the region that one of the important things throughout this, um, this very difficult period and since the, atta the unconscionable attack by Hamas uh, is uh, to continue to find ways for countries to cooperate, coordinate when it's um, in their interest to do so. And we'll continue to look to that. Any cooperation that, um, that we can elicit that facilitates the release of hostages, any cooperation that we can elicit that secures the provision of humanitarian assistance to uh, the men, women, and children in Gaza who, uh, who, who so desperately need it, um, we're, we, we work on that every day. And I think um, we can say that we've, we've seen some of that cooperation. The broader question, though, I think is uh, usually important because what's abundantly clear is the vast majority of, of countries, the vast majority of people want the same thing. Uh, they want a region where countries are, are working together, where relations are, are, are normalized, where there's greater integration, where people are uh, working together, studying together, traveling, doing business. Um, overwhelming majority of people want that. And we want to see as well the rights and aspirations of the Palestinian people fulfilled in the context of that kind uh, of region. And that's one vision, and it remains very much alive in every conversation that I had. The alternative is equally clear, and it's very stark. It's Hamas, it's Hezbollah, it's Iran, it's destruction, it's death, it's terrorism, it's darkness. So the more we are able to make real that first vision, the more I'm convinced that that's the vision that everyone, or virtually everyone, will subscribe to. So even as we are working through this challenge, this crisis, it's important to keep that vision alive because it's important that people know that there is an alternative and, and that everything that they hope for and that they aspire to is going to be best addressed through what I've just described, uh, that first vision. We'll continue to do that. Jennifer. Thanks, Mr. Secretary. Um, what can you tell us about the condition of these two Americans who have been released? What is their, their health status? And do you have any details on the condition of the Americans who are being held hostage? Have you seen any proof of life on them? And then on the Rafa crossing, what is the holdup in operationalizing this deal? And will we see it open this weekend? Um, I can't speak to uh, the condition of the uh, two hostages who were just released. Uh, first, out of respect for their privacy. Uh, second, because we haven't had a chance yet, maybe it's happening as we speak, to get our own team uh, in there to, uh, to see them, to, uh, to evaluate them, and most importantly, uh, to um, reunite them with their loved ones. So I'm sure that will... <clears throat> That'll, that'll come out in the, in the hours, certainly the, the days ahead, but I don't have anything for you on that now. Nor do I have anything for you on the, uh, the status of or condition of um, Americans who continue to be held by, by Hamas. Um, 
With regard to the, uh, to the Rafa crossing, as you know, when uh, some of us were traveling together in the region over the past week, um, getting assistance moving was among my top priorities. And we worked very hard with the, uh, the government of Israel, uh, the government of Egypt, uh, to do just that. And we secured an understanding that um, we would develop a plan to move assistance. Um, that understanding was cemented by President Biden when he was uh, in Israel and also speaking to President uh, al-Sisi of Egypt. In the time since, we've been working relentlessly with Ambassador David Satterfield on the ground, working with the United Nations, with Egypt, with Israel, to put that into motion. Uh, and my expectation is that you'll see that moving soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. All right, so that was uh, Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken talking uh, about the hostages, two hostages, released by the terrorist group Hamas in a deal that was arranged by the government of Qatar, working with the government of Israel. Uh, Israel says uh, that these two American hostages, Judith Renan and her 17-year-old daughter, uh, Natalie, they are now back from Gaza in Israel. They are heading to be reunited with their family. The Renans uh, live near Chicago. They were visiting relatives in Israel when they were kidnapped during the Hamas terrorist attacks on October 7th. Let's bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon. Oren, what does Hamas have to gain by releasing these hostages? They didn't do it out of the goodness of their hearts. No, but they do have a few different bits to gain here, potentially quite a bit. First of all, it looks good for them to release hostages, especially given the international pressure. And that's not just the U.S. and Israel. That is, Qatar has called for the release of women and children, as have other countries. So from that perspective, it is good for Hamas to do this. But it's not just that perspective, right? If there are other hostages alive, as the U.S. and as Israel believe, that means that gives Hamas leverage in this case. Whether that's leverage to, to try to get some sort of ceasefire here or get humanitarian aid, it is the belief that they can get something out of that. As you pointed out, they're not holding these people or, or releasing these two out of the goodness of their hearts. It is because they stand to gain something, and it's because they believe there is value in keeping these hostages, keeping them alive. The U.S. believes they're held in different locations, which makes it hard uh, for the Israelis and the Americans to pinpoint exactly where they are. But there's another point to be made here, and that's as we look back at the relationship between Israel and Hamas that has largely been managed through Qatar over the course of the past several years, and that is Hamas in the past when they've either launched rockets or held fence protests or even launched flaming balloons, they have seen Israel and specifically the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu make concessions in the form of tens of millions of dollars of money from Qatar flowing into Gaza or Israel expanding the fishing zone off the coast of Gaza or expanding the number of permits. So at least before the previous two weeks, there was a precedent for Israel and Netanyahu making concessions for violence. Now, this is, of course, an entirely different scenario, but if they believe that precedent is still in place, then perhaps they believe they can get concessions out of holding these hostages, whether that's concessions on the Israeli side or, or somewhere else. So clearly, Jake, they believe there is value in, in keeping these hostages, in, in perhaps releasing proofs of life at certain points, and depending on the success of Qatar in this situation, releasing more hostages in the future as it is to their need and as they think they can benefit. Oren Lieberman, thank you so much. I want to now go to the rabbi for 
uh, the Renan family, uh, Rabbi Hecht. Uh, Rabbi, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, you must be uh, pretty happy. Uh, I imagine the worst fears imaginable have been going through your head since October 7th. How did you find out? What are you hearing from the Renan family? Jake, thank you so much for having me. The news that we received that Judith and Natalie Renan have been released is overwhelming. We are, of course, tremendously grateful to the Almighty God. So much gratitude for this incredible beyond belief miracle. At the same time, you can understand that there's so much pain and deep concern for the over 200 hostages that still remain in Gaza in the hands of terrorists. Hamas have just done the most vicious and evil crimes against humanity less than two weeks ago. So the fact that they released two hostages, of course, to us, this is incredible. It's a member of our community, someone who we see every week in our congregation, someone who's close to us like family, and we are elated. We are still continuing to pray, and we are still continuing to ask everyone to do all you can Prayer helps. Look, we got Judith and Adelie out, but continue the prayers for the over 200 hostages who still remain in the hands of Hamas, vicious terrorists, and for the the entire nation of Israel who is still mourning over 1,400 who were viciously murdered, babies, men, women, and children. And we are hoping and praying that we will all be able to celebrate the end of this evil very, very soon. Rabbi, what can you tell us um, about Judith and Natalie, obviously without violating their privacy, but what can you tell us about them as people? Uh, Judith and Natalie are such kind, sweet, giving, sharing, generous souls. Judith is the, the type of person who would come over to our home, to our congregation all the time with gifts for the, for the children wanting to be there to spend this spiritual moment of prayer with everyone together, always wanting to join a class or any kind of gathering, a person who loves life, who loves humanity, who loves being together with other people. And like mom, like daughter, Natalie has been described by all of her friends as such a kind and sweet and generous girl. And we are so, so grateful to the Almighty God for this miracle. We're so glad to be able to get this news. And again, we still need to pray, and we are still pained and deeply concerned for the rest of the hostages. All right, Rabbi, here's the tough question. I'm a journalist, so. Um, oh, how, how do you explain this? I mean, you talk about praying to God. Somebody comes to you and says, if there's a God, how do you explain October 7th? If there's a God, how do you explain Hamas? How do you explain people that would do this? How do you explain the actions that took place? Jake, people have choices and people have the ability to perform evil. We are living in a world where there is good and evil. That's the world we live in. That's the world that God placed us in. At the same time, it is our job to bring light in the face of evil. Hamas performed evil, and this is a war of good versus evil. This is a war of kindness and goodness and light versus evil and darkness. And it is our job to shine that light. So tonight it is almost the Shabbos, the Jewish Sabbath. Every Jewish woman should please, before the Sabbath, before, before sundown, 
light the Shabbat candles. And every person, every human being should be out there standing up for civilization and for the light of goodness in this world. Make a prayer. Do a good and kind deed for your fellow. It will make a difference. It made a difference for Judith and Natalie. I believe so. And it will make a difference for the rest of the, of the hostages, the rest of Israel, and all those who are suffering. Rabbi Hack, thank you so much. I'm glad you got some good news today because God knows we could all use some good news in these dark times. Have a good Sabbath. Thank you, Jake. Appreciate it. Dan O'Shea is with me now. Uh, he is a former Navy SEAL hostage coordinator. Uh, Dan, I know that we don't know how this all happened, but um, what does the release of these two American hostages, and it does not escape notice that they were Americans, um, say about the potential fate of the other 200 or so? Well, hostage taking is how terrorist organizations negotiate with the West. Literally, this is their only leverage they have. So the, these, this, this release, which is obviously shock and surprise, it, it is a miracle. Um, it, it's actually a very positive sign. Um, I know that public perception in the, in the Arab world has turned against them because largely their hostages are, are grandparents, their families, their children. That is not serving their cause. And everything is about public imaging because right now there's tremendous pressure for all the countries that have hostages their governments are pressuring the IDF not to go in and do, you know, massive scale operations because, you know, largely we're looking at a Ramadi or Fuji type scenario, which would be very challenging. So this is a very brutal tactic, but it's actually a brilliant tactic. And again, this is this thing is going to is going to play out because there's 200 plus missing. This thing is just the first first chapter in what would be some happy endings, hopefully, uh, but probably some tragedies as well. Well, earlier today, the Israeli Defense Forces said a majority of the hostages, and we think there are about. 200 or so, that's the estimate. Um, they said, the IDF said that a majority of them are still alive. H- how would they know that? You know, there is, there's no idea. There could be 200 different holding locations. They could be holding six or seven locations. Um, you know, all that is based on the intelligence that the IDF had and Mossad per se. But, but they were, the October 7th attacks, I mean, that shows you a link, a, a, a damage link in the intelligence collection. So, there is no guarantee that they have this vaunted intelligence system because they, they should have stopped this. They should have known about this thing coming. So there really is no guarantee. There is never a 100% attendage at grid. You rarely get that type of accurate in, intelligence on the hostages. And, and that is the, the needle in the haystack. And that will be the case with every one of these hostages where they, where they are potentially located. Is there a strategic reason or a military reason for the IDF to claim uh, that the majority are still alive, even if of they course. don't know. No, of course, absolutely. You know, they are they are leveraging on every word. These hostages are now they are they are the Danes' guild. They are they are part of the exchange, the Danish gold. It's an ancient tactic about uh, taking hostages, and and that's the leverage. And so, um, this was a very smart move by Hamas to do this because this is going to drag out as long as there's the possibility that those hostages are still alive, there's going to be tremendous pressure from foreign governments that have hostages being held in, uh, in, in Gaza right now. All right, Dan O'Shea, former hostage ne- negotiator with the Navy SEALs. Good to have you here. Thank, Thank you, you so much. As we learn of this American mother and daughter released from the grips of Hamas, hundreds of other families are agonizing over the still unknown fate of their loved ones. I'm going to talk with a man whose brother and nephews are believed to have been kidnapped and being held right now by Hamas. That's next.
Other families are living in despair, obviously overwhelmed by the silence of not knowing if their relatives who were kidnapped by Hamas are okay or, frankly, even alive. For example, Yaniv Yagov's brother, Yair, and Yair's girlfriend, Nerav Tal, they were kidnapped from their kibbutz in near Or in Israel on October 7th. Yaniv's two nephews, ages 12 and 16, they were also kidnapped. And Yaniv joins us now. Yaniv, I'm so sorry that you and your family are going through this. Um, how are you holding up? Hi, hello. Well, it's been 13 days since that started, since the terrorist attack took place. Um, we, we are struggling. We are trying to get a sign, something that, that will show us their status whether they are healthy, whether they're eating, drinking, how do they feel? Are they together? We don't know. We don't have a clue where are they being held or what are they doing? Um, I was listening to uh, Anthony Blinken's words and finally I heard someone who really stated all of our goals since day one release the civilians back home alive. That's all we asked since day one. They're yeah. not supposed to be there. Yeah. The breaking news uh, of releasing the two, the two hostages, I, I heard about it uh, a couple of minutes before I went uh, to, to this interview. And then the fact that uh, they were released gives us some hope in our hearts, but, but there are 200 more that are held by Hamas and think about what you just said when I heard you saying it's my brother and his two kids and his girlfriend, a whole family had been kidnapped. Imagine our thoughts, imagine what we're going through and now the world starts to, to, to see what we saw on the, on, on the first day. This should never happen. The evil that we, that we saw was so frustrating, so hard for us. And we, we must stop it. This evil should not happen, neither in Israel nor in any place in the world. Tell us about Yair. The day, well, Yair is a people's guy. He, whenever he gets into a room, it doesn't matter where, right? You can put him in, in anywhere. And after five minutes, he will have so many friends around him. He will be contacted to so many people, different people in the room. They don't have to be the same. I'm, I'm, I'm his youngest brother. He's older than me in 12 years. And I've always, as a child, looked up and wanted to be Yair, wanted to be like him. He, he was always uh, bringing joy when he entered a room, when he was there, and also his kids. He has two marvelous kids, really, really enjoyable, always laughing, always making jokes at each other. Um, I have a son. My oldest son is very close to uh, the uh, older son that, that was kidnapped, 16 years old. My son is 17, and uh, his daughter was saved in that 
horrible situation. Yeah. My brother, oldest daughter was saved. But when she saw this week, we, we went to visit her also. And when she saw my son, she said, it's a mixture of the two brothers that were kidnapped. Mm. He is part of them. They are so happy. They are so joyful, as I explained. How old were your how old are your nephews that are that were kidnapped? How old are they? Twelve and sixteen. Mm, just kids. Two little kids. A friend of your brother's. I truly hope. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I I, I truly hope, and I truly believe, and that that the world is the only one who can influence the situation. Right? Israel is in a war with Hamas. We know that. And since Israel is in a war and Hamas is in a war, none of none of those two can influence each other. They are fighting. We need the world with us. That's what I started to do two days after I, I the whole thing started. And I really understood that my brother was kidnapped. It's not just us who now understand it. Think about it. Today, 86 Nobel laureates stand on a petition to immediately release them, the civilians, the children. Even one of them was Iranian. Mm-hmm. Every one of them signed that, that, that uh, petition. So the world understands, and, and, and we must do something to, pull, to continue push Hamas to release the civilians back home. Yeah. And not just release them back home, but also alive. Yaniv Yagov, thank you so much. I hope you get your brother and his girlfriend and your nephews back soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. When will that desperately needed humanitarian aid get into Gaza? CNN's Clarissa Ward just traveled to the Rafah crossing where dozens of trucks are sitting in Egypt and waiting and waiting. She'll join us live next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Stacks of humanitarian aid that were supposed to have already gone into Gaza today 
will now cross the Egyptian border within the next 24 to 48 hours, supposedly, in about 200 trucks, which carrying dire humanitarian aid, water and food and medicine, are just sitting there, just a short distance away from the tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians, innocent civilians, who desperately need it. The United Nations calling this a difference between life and death. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in Cairo, Egypt for us, and Clarissa, officials say road repairs were needed before the crucial aid could pass through. Is that really the only reason for this 13-day-long delay so far? No, Jake, it's not. We were actually at the Rafah border crossing today. The U.N. says there's a number of other issues. Firstly, the issue of the Israelis wanting to verify everything that's in those trucks to make sure there's no weapons there. They need to come up with some kind of a mechanism to do that, but that takes time. How would they do that? Where would they do that? The second issue, they say, is that they don't want this to be a one-off of just 20 trucks going in. They want to have an agreement in place for a sustained, continuous humanitarian corridor. They're worried, potentially, that their trucks and their workers could get attacked or mobbed if it's just that one uh, one sort of shipment or movement of 20 trucks. All of this, though, Jake, is really coming down to the wire now with fuel stocks about to run out in a matter of days and anger getting ever, ever higher. Take a look. For days, they have been waiting. More than 200 trucks full of aid desperately needed in Gaza, but stuck on the Egyptian side of the Rafah border crossing. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres hoped to be here for a much-needed diplomatic win. Instead, he found himself in the midst of a protest. His remarks drowned out by the crowd. People are chanting over and over again, with our blood, with our souls, we will defend Palestine. There's a huge amount of anger, a huge amount of emotion, much of it directed at the West. We need justice! We need justice! And much also at Western media, who people here feel have favored Israeli voices over Palestinians. Where is your humanity? A protester starts shouting at me. We invite her to do an interview with us. Okay, fine. When a thousand plus Palestinian babies die, you don't feel the same. You don't feel the same as when I tell you one of your own has died. But these are our own. And it is unfair, and Egypt will stand with Palestine. All Western channels are talking for Israel. If the United Nations is standing for Israel, if all these international institutions are standing for Israel, who's there for the Palestinians? And don't call it a war. The jargon is even more infuriating. It's not a war. They're not on an equal footing. It is not a war. For many, it is deeply personal. A Palestinian man holds up his ID. I can't contact you with can't my family your, there. Your family's on the other side. Yeah, I have seven sisters and my father, my mother, grandmother, uncles, all my family is there. I can't contact with them. I don't know. Are they, are if, they okay? You don't I don't know if they are okay or not. As Egyptian soldiers stand by, the demonstrators get more animated. Protests are normally illegal here, but today the Egyptian president called on people to take to the streets. So this is rapidly becoming a very chaotic scene now. They're trying to get the secretary general out of here. 
we are ordered back onto the buses and escorted out through the crowd back to Irish Airport, where piles of aides sit by the runway, so close to where they need to be, but held back, the UN says, by complications over how to monitor the trucks that enter Gaza and how to establish a continuous humanitarian corridor. When you saw the anger of those protesters, most of it leveled at Israel and the U.S., but also at the international community for failing to stop the situation. What's your response? I think what's important to say is that we are doing everything we can, uh, engaging with all the parties to make sure that sooner rather than later uh, we are able to have not only a first convoy, but continued aid to the population no in Gaza. Uh, I think it should be as quickly as possible and uh, uh, with as many uh, as possible trucks to cross uh, in the first few days. But that is little comfort to the people of Gaza, for whom every day, every hour is vital. Jake, one of the other sticking points here appears to be the issue of fuel. There has been agreement about food, about medicine, about water, but fuel is desperately needed to power the generators that are keeping those hospitals going, that are keeping those refuge centers overwhelmed as they are still going. President Biden, as you mentioned in the introduction, said hopefully within 24 to 48 hours we may start to see movement, but there are still obstacles to overcome. And the Secretary General saying we desperately need to end this impasse, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward in Cairo, Egypt for us. Thank you so much. This photo just into CNN. The Israeli government says it shows the two American hostages just released, Judith Renan and her 17-year-old daughter Natalie, right after they were allowed to leave Gaza and re-entered Israel. The Renans lived near Chicago and had been visiting relatives in Israel when they were kidnapped during the Hamas terrorist attacks on Israel on October 7th. Jim Jordan is out. His bumpy road to the House speakership finally met its final roadblock. And now several House Republicans are jumping into the speaker's race. That's next. In politics today, after forcing three votes for speaker, despite never having actually secured enough support, and in fact losing support on each subsequent vote, Jim Jordan finally today officially acknowledged that he lost the room. This afternoon, in secret ballot, House Republicans officially decided he is no longer their choice to become speaker. CNN reporting that Jordan lost by a rather sizable margin. So what's next? Republicans say they're going to meet for a candidate forum on Monday. At least seven Republicans say they're throwing their hats into the ring for speaker. And Kevin McCarthy is already giving an endorsement, saying he'll back House Majority Leader Congressman Tom Emmer of Minnesota, even though just hours before he had delivered a ringing endorsement of Jordan in a speech nominating him on the floor. With me now is Republican Congressman Steve Womack from Arkansas, who had voted against Jordan three times. Congressman, your conference uh, voted by secret ballot and determined that Jordan should not remain the speaker candidate. So I have to ask, in the midst of two major foreign policy crises and this pending government shutdown, what on earth was this week all about? Why did Jim Jordan force three, these three votes and waste this entire week? Well, Jake, you're right. Um... Sometimes we can be slow learners. You know, it's kind of ironic that we're doing this interview 
in the shadows of the Will Rogers statue from Oklahoma right behind me. And you remember what Will said about this whole business of learning. You can learn, people learn by reading, people can learn by observation, and sometimes people learn by just peeing on the electric fence for themselves. So that, that is a situation that is reminiscent of House Republicans right now that it has taken us now 17 days since the removal of Kevin McCarthy for us to be in a situation where we can at least see some clarity, some light at the end of the tunnel. But right now it's another weekend, a quiet day at the Capitol after all of the activities here and members are going home and we'll be back Monday night at 630 and we'll start this process all over again. I also know Will Rogers said, um, I'm not a member of an organized political party, I'm a Democrat. And maybe that was true of the Democratic Party at the time, but it sure describes your party right now, which is, at least on the House side, just a god-awful mess. Do you think you're going to get it together, your party? I mean, can you all rally against, all rally around someone? Like, are you, is there somebody you like? Uh, Tom Emmer perhaps seems kind of like a Womack Republican, maybe. I like anybody that we can muster 217 votes for. But that's certainly an elusive target right now because of the fractures in the conference. You know, we have a, we have a lot of different groups uh, that have certain ideologies and certain leanings and certain favorites, House Freedom Caucus being one of those, and, and they were trying to prop up the candidacy of Jordan. But there was something telling today, Jake, in my strong opinion, and I, I tried to I tried to communicate this to our leadership, and when I met with Mr. Jordan on Monday at noon, I tried to communicate that to him, and that is, Jim got 194 Republican votes in the open on the House floor about five hours ago. And then we went, went down to HC5 in the privacy of our conference, and in a secret ballot, he got 86. Now, that, that tells me that he was not nearly as popular yeah. among our colleagues as he was among a lot of people that have given me a lot of advice on the phone here over the last several days. So we, we, you know, we voted Tuesday. He was down 20 of our members. He's not going to get a Democrat vote. And then 22 on Wednesday. And then we wasted Thursday and came back on Friday. And then it went to 25. And it was about to be a lot worse if we'd have gone to a fourth vote. But, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to try to come back Monday and restart and see where, where it takes us. So may I humbly offer you guys some advice? Have you considered ranked choice voting <laughs> where you do your first and second and third votes? And then maybe you can at least come up with like top three and like maybe that would help you achieve some sort of compromise Man. candidate because that really might not be a horrible idea. And really, we need a speaker like the yeah, country needs a speaker. This isn't about, you know, prom king. Like, we need a functioning legislative branch. Yeah, well, that, that's the obvious, and we'd like to be able to deliver on that, but uh, we seem to have a hard time understanding that in a narrow majority where you can only lose four votes, and it may be less than that if, uh, if your members aren't here, and so, you know, you're at 217. You got, we got 430, I think 431, 432 members in the, in the, in the entire House, and you got to get 217. And, and there is a litmus test, and Democrats are not going to vote for a Republican nominee. That's just the way this process works. 
But, you know, if, if that's going to be the case, then you've got to get 217 in your own conference, and as fractured as it is, and, and let me tell you, Jake, there's some deep wounds right now. There, there are some hurt feelings. There are some angry people. And uh, I know, but you it, know what? None of us out here care. Really, I know. honest. Well, like, it's just like, get over it. We see Nancy Mace. One of your members blocked Nancy Mace, and then Nancy Mace made a kitty cat, a pussy cat, more aptly, uh, emoji at him. It's just like... Seriously, this is like high school, but like we need, like there's legislation that is, like there are literally Americans being killed abroad and we need this to work. Yeah, that's, that's kind of offensive to high school people because it's really junior high stuff. <laughs> I mean, this is really, that's a good point. This, is, this, this is junior high stuff. I mean, look, we, we get wrapped around the axle of a lot of nonsensical things. But yes, the world is burning around us. Uh, we're fiddling. We don't have a strategy. Our rules uh, direct us to do this a certain way. And quite frankly, I, I don't like relitigating the past, but uh, the fact that Steve Scalise never got a chance to get his candidacy to the, to the floor of the House and test that vote uh, was disappointing to me. And it, it, it formed the basis for why I went the way I went in every vote that I took, uh, uh, took this week. But we'll, we'll hear from the candidates. There will be a bunch of them. Uh, only one of them will survive. I don't know who that will be. I haven't looked at the field. We will hear from them Monday night and then vote perhaps on Tuesday, and it'll probably be like uh, what we call Queen of the Hill, you know, we'll, the last one will be out and then we'll go back and do it again. So uh, look, this is not over. But Jake, I'm gonna also tell you this, that even when we do get a speaker, mm -hmm. uh, the hard lift is still out there. And that is, how do you get a rule passed on the floor? How do you push legislation? If you carry the fractures of your conference into the legislative body, so this is going to test leadership. Leadership has to be equal to the challenge that we can get all of our members on the rope, pulling in the same direction, yeah. not caring about who's going to get the credit if we succeed or the blame should we fail. That's the bottom line, and that's the ultimate test of leadership. Well, you have my vote. Congressman <laughs> Steve Womack, appreciate you. Thank you so much. Hope you have a good weekend. And I always hope good to, yeah, hope, always good to be with you, Jake. Hope you have a party gets it together. Yeah, Coming up next, you. the latest on the breaking news, two Americans, a mother and her daughter, previously held hostage by Hamas. Thank God they've been released. What we're learning about how that release came about. We're going to go live to their hometown. Stay with us. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, breaking news, two U.S. citizens, Judith Ty Renan and her 17-year-old daughter, Natalie Renan, who had been kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th, have now been released, and they're now back in Israel. We just got this new photograph of Judith and Natalie from the Israeli military. Israel believes that Hamas still has around 200 hostages, and as of this morning, Israel's military says that they believe most of them are still alive. Plus, will they or won't they? That remains the key question at the Rafah border between Gaza and Egypt. 
there are trucks lined up inside of which are much needed food and water and fuel and medicine. But promises that these trucks would be let into Gaza this morning have not been realized. Here is the UN Secretary General at the key crossing earlier today. Behind these walls, we have two million people that is suffering enormously. So these trucks are not just trucks. They are a lifeline. They are the difference between life and death for so many people in Gaza. What we need is to make them move, to make them move to the other side of this wall, to make them move as quickly as possible. Inside Gaza earlier today, an airstrike from Israel hit a Greek Orthodox church where both elderly and young children were taking shelter. Here is how one resident described it. They came here to escape the airstrikes and the destruction. They thought they were safe here. The destruction followed them. We also have reports of at least 13 people killed, including five children in the West Bank after Israeli forces entered the North Shams refugee camp. These scenes that are igniting protests in the streets across the Arab world, from Egypt to Jordan to Yemen to Turkey, tensions are high, emotions are raw, and there are legitimate fears that this violence could spread to become a wider regional conflict. Let's start with Aaron Burnett, who's in Tel Aviv. And Aaron, we're getting more details about the release of these two American hostages. Yes, uh, Judith uh, Anan, uh, Anan and Natalie Ranan are both now in the hands of the IDF. You saw those images, Jake, and an incredible moment. I mean, everyone would look at that and say what an incredible moment it was. And uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, says that soon they will be in U.S. Embassy hands and then, of course, moves to reunite them uh, with their family. Um, This deal was brokered by the government of Qatar, which, of course, Jake, as you know, has a history of dealing with hostile adversarial non-state actors in such hostage transfers, uh, whether it be with the Taliban or, in this case, obviously with Hamas. Uh, Anthony Blinken thanked the government of Qatar specifically uh, when it was announced that Judith and Natalie would be released. He also said that, though, that there are 10 additional Americans who are still missing. Uh, and obviously, they believe some, if not all of those, may also be hostages. So so we'll see what happens next. But obviously, huge news for this family. Uh, Natalie, her brother, Ben, is I'm going to be talking to him tonight. Uh, he had talked about her as getting ready to go to the next stage of life and college and and wanting to be loving art and how she wants to be a tattoo artist and an artist and all these things she wanted to do. Uh, This was a few days ago when he didn't know whether she would come home alive. And now this incredible news for this this one family uh, with the most joyful news one could possibly imagine, Jake. And of course, though, we still know there are 201 additional hostages uh, that are not released, although we know from the IDF this morning that the majority of them are alive. We've got more information on the hostages today than any other day, Jake, and obviously this incredibly significant news here in just these past couple of hours, begging the question of whether there will be more releases or what comes next as we are in these waiting and waiting for what comes next. In that, Jake, I will mention, we have heard more thuds in the past 10 minutes from Gaza here in Tel Aviv than I've heard in the past few days, actually. It had been an initial bombardment, we heard, as you know, then very quiet, and then in just the past few minutes, we did hear quite a bit. All right, Aaron Burnett, thank you so much. Stay safe. CNN's MJ Lee is at the White House for us. And MJ, what is the White House saying about the release of Judith and Natalie Renan? 
Well, Jake, it has obviously been an incredibly dark and challenging two weeks, and the release of these two American hostages has marked a very rare dark spot. Uh, the president saying in a statement this afternoon that he is simply overjoyed that these two women now get to be reunited with their family, but he acknowledged, too, that this is uh, far from over. A U.S. official confirming to me this afternoon that there are additional American hostages uh, being held by Hamas, though we still don't know an exact number. Remember, U.S. officials have continued to use language like a handful of hostages that are believed to be there. And the president saying that he is committed to working around the clock to get more hostages out. Uh, now, U.S. officials have been stressing for a while that it has been extraordinarily difficult and challenging to ascertain any information about American hostages, their condition, their number, uh, where they are being held, whether they are even in one place. But it is clear that the Israelis played obviously a very important role in sharing intelligence uh, with the U.S. and that the Qataris also played a very important role in mediating uh, this situation. Uh, one piece of reporting that I will note from earlier today, uh, Jake, that I think is really important uh, is that according to a U.S. official, they are still not aware of any uh, so-called proof of life videos concerning American hostages that is akin to the video that was released earlier this week by Hamas of a 21-year-old uh, French Israeli. So, uh, Jake, just needless to say, this has been an incredibly dark uh, sort of focus for the president trying to get these American hostages out. We know that this was a significant focus for him when he traveled to Israel earlier this week, and it remains his top priority, he said, in the statement that celebrated the release of these two hostages. All right, MJ Lee, thank you so much. I want to bring in uh, CNN's Alex Marquardt. Uh, Alex, what do we know about how this uh, hostage release unfolded? Well, this was really sudden, Jake. This was a surprise. We had not been given any indication from sources uh, that there was much headway being made um, with with the with Hamas and, and, and the release of any of these hostages. Earlier this afternoon, Caitlin Collins and I heard from different sources that this was underway, that two American hostages, a mother and a daughter, were on their way out. We didn't know who it was. Of course, now it has been confirmed as uh, Judith and, and Natalie Renan. Um, I was told that they were handed over to the Red Cross, which obviously operates inside Gaza. They're a relatively independent organization, as, as far as any uh, organizations are independent in the Gaza Strip, and, and they were driven south. Um, there are two crossings out of, uh, out of Gaza uh, into Egypt and into Israel. Uh, and so we know that very quickly from the time that we learned that this was happening, uh, they did get out and they were handed over to Israeli authorities. The Israelis say that they were taken to a military base. We heard from Secretary Blinken earlier today who said that they will be visited uh, soon by U.S. embassy officials being be given anything that they need. Uh, obviously, the priority is on getting them home as soon as possible uh, so they can reunite with their family. Here's a little bit more of what Blinken had to say. Welcome the release. We share in the relief that their families, friends, and loved ones are feeling. But there are still 10 additional Americans who remain unaccounted for uh, in this conflict. We know that some of them are being held hostage by Hamas, along with an estimated 200 other hostages uh, held in Gaza. So some 200 remain. Um, I'd been told uh, by a source who was familiar with the discussions that um, the mother, Judith Renan, uh, was in, in poor health. And, and that may be an indication of why Hamas decided uh, to release her at this point. Can I just interrupt? That doesn't make any sense. They go into Israel. They slaughter babies. They kill civilians. 
and then this woman's unhealthy, so they release her they, they, out of the goodness of their heart for humanitarian reasons? No. That, that doesn't make any sense. No, not out of the goodness of their heart, but because it also serves their purposes. What, well, how? Well, because it is a burden to take care of some 200 hostages. But so just kill them. I mean, like, they already killed 1,300 Israelis. Well, Why did... Because they can still use these hostages as leverage. They for can, what? To get uh, concessions from the Israelis, to get... They want uh, to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. I mean, what concessions? Well, if you look back at the, the release of Gilad Shalit back in 2011, that was one Israeli soldier for more than 1,000 Israeli prisoners. So here, as we prepare for the ground incursion by Israel, um, Hamas may believe that they could get aid, a temporary ceasefire, and be able to trade these remaining 200 prisoners for Palestinians who are in Israeli prisons. All right. I guess I could see that, that part of it. But, I mean... Don't get me wrong. I do not believe that this is out of the goodness of their heart, but it is tough to feed, water, move around 200 people. I think it's more likely that it's because they're Americans. Absolutely. That is also the case. These are not, these are not other nationals. Right. These are not uh, solely Israelis. Right. And, they, were, and, they, weren't, and they weren't even dual citizens. But to they the, were just purely Americans. Uh, and to the point about getting concessions out of Israel, they are releasing Israel's biggest backer, the biggest supporter of Israel, as they go into Gaza to confront them. Yeah, all right. To be continued, Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. CNN's Whitney Wild is in Evanston, Illinois, from uh, where that's where the two freed American hostages come from. Whitney, um, you, you're talking to the friends and family of the Renans. Uh, how are they re- reacting? They must be just so relieved because obviously Hamas is capable of anything. Relieved, overjoyed. I mean, consider this, Jake. This community had been waiting in agony, not knowing if they were alive or dead for two weeks. Uh, Their rabbi spoke with us and spoke so glowingly of Judith and Natalie, uh, saying over and over how their kindness was simply boundless, which is what made their being hostages especially cruel. Here's what uh, Rabbi Hecht had to say uh, about just the collective feeling here, knowing that now these two women are going to be able to come home, Jake. Judith is the type of person who would come over to our home, to our congregation all the time with gifts for the, for the children, wanting to be there to spend this spiritual moment of prayer with everyone together, always wanting to join a class or any kind of gathering, a person who loves life, who loves humanity, who loves being together with other people. And like mom, like daughter, Natalie has been described by all of her friends as such a kind and sweet and generous girl. It has been so challenging, Jake, to wait moment after moment, not knowing if they were alive or dead, not knowing if they would come home. And that is still the experience for uh, other American families whose loved ones are still over there. And it's those families' pain that is weighing on this community still, because this community will not be healed until this is over, until this conflict is over, and until the rest of these Americans come home, Jake. All right, Whitney Wild in Evanston, Illinois. Thank you so much for that reporting. Between the hostage release today and the confusion over whether there will be any aid arriving in Gaza to help the innocents in Gaza, there's a lot to ask the White House. In just a few minutes, I'm going to get to ask John Kirby from the National Security Council about all of this. We'll be right back. You're looking at a new photo of the first known hostages released by Hamas since its heinous terrorist attack on October 7th. 
Judith Renan and her 17-year-old daughter Natalie Renan were in Israel visiting family when Hamas kidnapped them. The Israeli government says Judith and Natalie are now safe in Israel. And the White House says President Biden spoke with Judith and Natalie's family this afternoon. Joining us now, White House National Security Council spokesman, retired Rear Admiral uh, John Kirby. Admiral, how much did the White House have to do with the release of these two Americans? We were very much involved uh, at various levels uh, in helping secure their release. And obviously, uh, we certainly give credit to the government of Israel and the government of Qatar, uh, who obviously played key roles in this. I mean, it was a team effort uh, across the interagency, but also internationally. And, and all we're just we're just glad that that they're safe and sound and hopefully soon uh, we'll be able to get back uh, back to Illinois with their family where they belong. But why would Hamas release them? I mean, not, they, they, don't, they wouldn't do it out of the goodness of their heart. They're, to, they're a brutal, ruthless terrorist organization. Why would they just release these two Americans? Yeah, Jake, I think it's going to be, uh, we're going to have to be careful about what we say in, in terms of the, 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 the machinations here that, that we're required to get them home or get them out of there because we know that there's still some Americans being held hostage and we want to get them back to their families too. So I hope you can understand that uh, we're not really going to be able to talk much about motivations and, and, and the details here. Uh, we're just glad that they're safe and sound and, and, uh, and hopefully home soon. Just to explain for our viewers what's going on, I assume there are protesters outside the White House, which is a, a right that we as Americans celebrate, the right to peaceably protest or not so uh, peaceably. Um, those, uh, are, they, are those people uh, protesting for uh, any particular cause? It is difficult for me to understand exactly what they're, what they're saying is, what, what their point is. Um, I'm trying to focus on okay, you and your question, so I, I, don't know what they're, fair I don't know what they're saying. So do you think, or is the White House advising the Israeli government that the longer they wait before a ground incursion, the more successful uh, it will be to get hostages out of Gaza. I, again, want to be careful what I talk about in terms of the diplomatic conversations that we're having with, with Israel. I, I want to make it clear we aren't interfering in their mil military operations. We're not directing, obviously, their military operations. They're a sovereign state and a, and a very capable military. Uh, when President Biden went, he, of course, uh, asked questions of Israeli counterparts, the prime minister, to find out what their thinking was, what their intentions were, how their planning uh, was shaping up. Uh, we want to be careful that we protect our operational security. Uh, but we, I will also say clearly uh, the issue of hostages, not just Americans, but all hostages, was front and center on the president's mind when he met with the prime minister. And he had the chance to meet with some of the families of, of hostages uh, while he was there. So uh, obviously hostage recovery uh, was key to uh, one of the president's uh, agenda items. Do you know anything about the, the damaging, the strike of a, a, of a church in Gaza today? There appears to have been a strike against a, an Orthodox church in Gaza. Yeah, I've seen some press reporting on that, uh, Jake, but I, I don't have any more detail about what, what exactly happened. Um, in terms of the continued effort to get humanitarian aid from Egypt into Gaza, uh, yesterday, President Biden and Egyptian officials said that the Rafah crossing would be opening this morning. Uh, it did not open this morning. Uh, when will it open? And, and what made President Biden confident, uh, despite the fact that it, it, that confidence apparently was misplaced? Well, I, I would uh, 
I would beg, beg to dis disagree on the misplaced confidence. I mean, he had a good conversation with President Sisi as well as Prime Minister Netanyahu and was able to secure an agreement for humanitarian assistance to get into Gaza. And he's confident, and he said so again today, that, uh, that in the coming uh, hours, if not uh, a couple of days, we'll, we should be able to see uh, that humanitarian assistance get in. One of the obstacles was, quite frankly, the road. Uh, the road that leads into the gate uh, was damaged and there was no confidence that the trucks would be able to traverse that road safely and efficiently. So the Egyptians are working on repairs to that road. I know that that, that is at least one issue uh, holding it up. Uh, but again, we're confident that it's going to happen. Uh, we hope very, very soon. I have to say, it sounds like there's a full-scale rebellion going on at the U.S. State Department where, um, according to many press reports as well as public statements, Officials and now former officials are concerned that the Biden administration uh, is not doing nearly enough. And in some cases, they believe the Biden administration is derelict uh, in protecting innocent people of Gaza. And I know you're going to say Hamas uses them as as human shields. And there is plenty of evidence to suggest that that's true. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Biden administration is doing as much as you could be doing to protect uh, innocent people in, in Gaza right now. So how do you how do you respond to those charges being made by officials in your own administration? Well, certainly they they should uh, be able to speak for themselves. I would simply say that uh, really from the very early hours of this, uh, we have been concerned about civilian casualties. We have been concerned about collateral damage uh, inside Gaza. And you and I talked in the early days uh, about the concerns that we had expressed to our Israeli counterparts about that and the abiding of the, the by the law of war is something that's been front and center for us from the beginning. And as for humanitarian assistance, look, we've also said since the very early hours, it's important that the people of, Palestine, of, of, of Gaza, the Palestinians in Gaza, that they don't suffer any more than Hamas is making them suffer already. They didn't do anything wrong. They're being victimized. They need food, water, electricity, uh, and medical equipment. I mean, they, they need all that, and, and the United States is right there with them. We're going to do everything we can to not only get the gate open and get that stuff in, Jake, but put in place a sustainable method for it to keep going. So we have been focused on this really from the very, very early hours on. And again, I, I respect not everybody has the same opinion, and they're certainly right to express it and make decisions about their careers uh, as they see fit. Uh, but I'm comfortable in the meetings I've been in and the discussions I've seen and my conversations with the president that he has been laser focused on this from very, very early on. White House National Security Council spokesman, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. An Israeli-American soldier has left his family behind here in the U.S. to go to Israel to join the fight. I'm going to talk with him next. As the Israeli Defense Forces prepare for their expected military incursion into Gaza, my next guest left his home and family here in the United States and arrived in Israel yesterday to fight with the IDF. Major Shai, and we're not giving his last name, is a restaurant owner and chef who has lived in the U.S. for more than a decade. He's also an IDF major. And he joins us from Israel in a location we're not going to disclose. And, of course, as I told you, we're not going to use his first name either. Major, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. What kind of um, fighting are you expecting? Are you expecting to take part in, in combat operations? Uh, I, can't, I cannot talk exactly about what uh, we do here. Um, I'm an operations officer, so I support... Uh, part of our uh, operations in coordinating communications. 
It must have been tough to leave your family. Um, how did you explain this to your kids? Um, it was really hard. That part was very, actually very hard for us. Um, my wife and I sat them down. Uh, we didn't fully tell them that I'm going to fight. Um, we told them that I'm just going to help. Uh, we have family here in Israel. My daughters, uh, they grew up visiting their family in Israel. And we explained to them that uh, Israel is under attack and we need to go help them because uh, that's our family and friends and they need our support and our help. Unfortunately, throughout the world and in the United States, there's been an increase of both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia since the Hamas terrorist attacks and since the war against Hamas began. Um, has your family experienced any of that? Uh, we have. This is actually, I've never experienced that kind of uh, anti-Semitism in the U.S. until I got here last week. Uh, unfortunately, my family, could, my daughters could not go to school two days last week due to uh, threats on our community uh, by even uh, the FBI even arrested uh, somebody that um, threatened our community and our school and our JCC. Uh, and it's just something that I've never thought I'd had to deal with in the U.S. Um, as a, a grandfather, <clears throat> as a grandson of Holocaust survivors that came to the U.S. and the way the U.S. rescued us of my family, I've never thought that I'm going to have to deal with kind of, that kind of stuff and uh, not being able to send my kids to schools in America uh, because they're being threatened. Have you personally seen any expressions of anti-Semitism in the United States that surprised you? Uh, yes, in the last two weeks. Uh, previously, I did a little bit, but not to that extent. Nothing in the past that has been, um, you know, I'm very connected to Israel and my family here. And that same notion all the time that uh, we're not anti-Semitic, we're just anti-Israel. And I kind of let that go, which is obviously a mistake we see now. But now I, I really see the full picture and it's not anti-Israel. It's really anti-Semitic because um, kids that go to school in the U.S. should not fear for their lives just because of their heritage or religious. Do you have relatives in Israel or acquaintances who were affected by the Hamas terrorist attacks in any way? Yes, I have uh, several relatives and friends that lost their life in that attack. You have it relatives? Was, uh, you have relatives who were killed? Really hard and brutal. Um, friends, very, very close friends. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, you, were, you were also um, in Israel for the 2014 Israeli operation against Hamas called Operation uh, Protective Edge. Can you t tell us what you did back then? Uh, the same thing. The same thing that you won't tell us what it is? I can't really. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean. Well, let me ask you another I, question. Uh, I support. Yeah. Um, it is, it is ho horrible what happened on October 7th. Horrible. And, and I understand the argument that the Israeli government makes, certainly, about you cannot allow Hamas to operate right next door and have... Gaza be a staging ground for future terrorist attacks against the Israeli people. But what do you what do you think when you see the pictures, the images of of innocent Palestinians? And I, I get the argument again that 
Hamas uses its own people as, as human shields. I, I, I hear the argument. But what's your reaction when you see the images of innocent Palestinians wounded or, or killed in Israeli strikes? It's heartbreaking, to be honest. It is heartbreaking. And I can tell you that uh, as part of, of what I do is that we try to avoid it as much as possible. We do not target the Palestinian civilians. I have, actually have uh, Palestinian friends in the U.S. and Israeli Arabs. Our um, fight is not with the Palestinian people. Our fight is with Hamas. It is heartbreaking and devastating when the Palestinian people are trapped in, uh, in the middle of uh, Hamas's attacks and um, the whole notion of we have to destroy everyone in Israel, Jews and Arabs and Muslims in Israel, by the way. Um, and the Palestinian people has to carry this burden and uh, allow Hamas to hide behind them with their brutal and inhumane attacks. And it's, for me, seeing them trapped is just as painful as seeing uh, Jewish people uh, trapped in this conflict. But we cannot allow that, uh, and we cannot allow Hamas hide behind them. Uh, we have to fight Hamas, and somebody who's trying to fight you, we're going to do everything we can to uh, prevent casualties and innocent people getting hurt. But we cannot let that stop us from um, stopping Hamas. Major Shai, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This unprecedented uncertainty in the Middle East quickly became political here in the United States, as does everything. Up next, former Vice President and 2024 presidential candidate Mike Pence will join me live to discuss the war. And I'll ask him about the dysfunction among House Republicans back here in D.C. Stay with us. As the Middle East is engulfed in war with fears of it spreading to the region, there is absolute chaos here in D.C. among House Republicans. We now turn to former vice president, current candidate for the Republican presidential nomination, and former member of House Republican leadership, Mike Pence. Vice President Pence, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Um, Thank you, Jack. We have the news this evening. Two Americans previously held hostage by Hamas have now been Release. They're now in the care of Israeli forces. There are still 10 Americans unaccounted for. How would you, if you were president at this, at this point, how would you be handling the situation uh, in the Middle East? Well, first, I think it's extremely important that every leader in this country speak with one voice and make it clear to the world that America stands with Israel uh, and that we'll stand with Israel today and we'll stand with Israel tomorrow and through all of the difficult days that lie ahead. Look, after that horrific uh, and uh, an unprecedented terrorist attack on Israel, Jake, um, Israel has no choice but to hunt down and destroy Hamas at its source. And, and I believe that there should be no daylight uh, between the United States of America and our most cherished ally, Israel. And we need to make it clear, particularly to other powers in the region, beginning with Iran, also Assad's regime in Syria, Hezbollah in Lebanon, that any effort to, to expand this into a wider conflict uh, uh, will, will be met uh, with, uh, with a complete and seamless alliance between the United States and America. Only American strength 
is is going to create the conditions in which Israel is going to have the room to do what they need to do to secure uh, their country for the future and end the reign of Hamas once and for all. Would you, as president, be considering using special operations forces uh, to rescue American hostages if you were president right now? Well, I, I, I said uh, the better part of uh, two weeks ago, Jake, that uh, if I was president, I would have already been on the phone with the Joint Special Operations Command. I would have uh, given orders uh, for Delta Force uh, and uh, the Navy SEALs uh, to be prepared uh, to work with Israeli Defense Forces to engage in hostage rescue. And then I would have told Hamas that you have uh, you got 12 hours to turn loose every American, every Israeli hostage or we're going to come and get them. Uh, look, I, I welcome the release of uh, of the two American hostages today. But uh, at, at, at the end of the day, we simply have uh, the best fighting force hostage rescue capability in the world. And Hamas needs to understand that uh, that we would be willing to use that. And 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 uh, we need to pressure them and demand uh, that uh, that Hamas turn those Americans and turn those Israeli Israelis lose. But if you if you were, did, in fact, give that order and I'm not judging it, but I'm just saying if you were, in fact, to give that order, Delta Force Navy SEALs into Gaza to rescue the American hostages, you would be, in effect, having sending boots in the ground into a place that is about 10 times bigger, uh, if not. I think it's actually maybe I might be wrong about that. I might be 30 times bigger uh, than Fallujah. It would be an incredibly difficult battle. Uh, and that's boots in the ground into another Middle Eastern war. Right. And, and look, but we're talking about Americans now, Jake. We're talking about Americans that have been captured uh, and taken hostage by, by the brutal Hamas terrorists. And, uh, uh, and, and that, that's what our team exists for. So, I, I, look, I, I've, I've seen the Delta Force uh, rehearsals uh, at, uh, at Fort Bragg. I've, I've stood on the beach at Coronado uh, with the Navy SEALs. These are the best in the world. But look, um, I also believe uh, that we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel on this issue of uh, of, of aid into uh, the Gaza Strip, that uh, Israel's made it clear no aid will pass across any border uh, of between Israel uh, and Gaza until those hostages are turned loose. I think we need to make that U.S. policy, and I would stand by that if I was president of the United States. Speaking of aid, um, there can't be any additional aid package until... The House of Representatives uh, picks a speaker, which uh, we have not had in the United States for 17 days because House Republicans cannot pick a speaker. Uh, You used to be House Republican leadership. Um, It certainly was a lot more calm and organized back in those days. I remember when you were when you were I believe you were caucus chair, uh, if memory serves. Um, I was. And in, in those in in those 17 days, we've seen Americans captured and killed. Um, We've seen all sorts of things happening in Ukraine. The government is facing a a shutdown. Um, What do you make of this unbelievable display of dysfunction, incompetence, uh, self-regard? I could go on and on, but it's only a two-hour show that we've seen from House Republicans. Like, what what is going on? And if, if you were an American voter right now, what do you think you'd be thinking, well, you are an American voter, but I know you'd vote Republican anyway. But if you were an independent American voter and you were watching House Republicans right now, what, what do you yeah. think you'd be thinking? Yeah, I got you. Well, look, all roads lead back to the 
group of eight Republicans that I call the Chaos Caucus. Uh, Jake, I mean, look, I was I was the Republican conference chairman. I was a third ranking leader in the House of Representatives. Uh, and I, I cherish my years in the House, but never in all of my time when I, I led a lot of fights, you remember, against big spending Republicans. I, I battled a, a Republican president of my own party fighting against big government programs. But never in my wildest imagination could I have conceived of of uh, of of a handful of Republicans joining with every Democrat in the Congress to oust a Republican Speaker of the House. But that that's where we are today. But look, here's how it's supposed to work. Uh, the conference is supposed to get in a room, vote in a majority about who the conference wants to support as Speaker of the House. And then every member in the conference is expected to go out and vote for that speaker. Uh, Steve Scalise won that round the first time around. Steve Scalise would have been an outstanding speaker of the House. Jim Jordan won that the second time around. Uh, Jim Jordan would be an outstanding speaker of the House. But my, my message to my former colleagues is with everything going on in the world today, with the struggles uh, American families are facing in this economy, with a crisis at our border the people of this country want Republicans in Congress to stop fighting with each other and start fighting for them. I think it's time that they got in a room, that they decided whether or not they want to be on the team, uh, choose a speaker, get to the floor and get back to work. Former Vice President Mike Pence, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to have you on, sir. Thank you, Jake. Another one of Donald Trump's co-defendants has flipped details on this latest plea deal and why what was admitted in court today is so significant. Stay with us. The gold-plated walls around former President Trump appear to be closing in on him. First, former Trump attorney Sidney Powell of Release the Kraken fame flipped on Trump in the Georgia election subversion case. And now Wisconsin's own Kenneth Chesbro also took a plea deal. CNN's Nick Valencia has more on that. Nick, what happened in court today? This was a stunning development out of Fulton County. As part of this plea deal, Ken Chesborough has agreed to uh, plead guilty to conspiracy to commit false documents. Uh, that's a felony count, but uh, he's also going to have to pay a $5,000 fine, uh, do 100 hours of community service, but perhaps most importantly is he's agreed to testify in any future proceedings or trials for the remaining co-defendants in this case, and that includes former President Donald Trump. After Ken Chesborough took this deal, I spoke to his attorney, Scott Grubman, outside the courthouse, and I asked him what he would say to those critics who believe that Chesborough has turned his back on the former president and are calling him a snitch. He didn't snitch against anyone. Um, he went in there. He accepted uh, responsibility for what I would view as one of the minor kind of tag-on charges in the indictment. Um, and that was that. I mean, I, I could absolutely tell you that, again, if he's called, he'll, he'll, he'll go testify and answer their questions. But I would disagree. I don't think Mr. Chesborough snitched against anyone. I think he simply decided it was time for him to put this behind him and go on with his life. This was a significant win, a huge win, really, for the Fulton County District Attorney's Office because not only did they secure Sidney Powell on Thursday as a state witness against the former president, but now they also have Ken Chesborough, two key witnesses as the Fulton County District Attorney's Office can narrow its case against former president Donald Trump. Nick Valencia, CNN, Atlanta. And our thanks to Nick Valencia in Fulton County for that report. Donald Trump punished today related to yet a different court case he's involved in, why he was fined thousands of dollars. That's next.
Earlier today, a New York judge fined former President Donald Trump $5,000 for violating a gag order. Judge Arthur Engeron issued a partial gag order for everyone involved in Trump's civil fraud case, banning them from speaking about any members of the court staff. The gag order was issued after Trump attacked Judge Engeron's clerk on his Truth Social page. The post was removed from Truth Social, but it was not erased from Trump's campaign website. Judge Engeron admonished Trump's attorneys for what he called a blatant violation of the gag order, and he warned that future violations could lead to steeper financial penalties or even jail time. Before we go, so many of you that have been watching our coverage have wanted to help Israelis and Palestinians with humanitarian relief efforts for the innocents who don't deserve any of this. CNN has been compiling resources. Head to CNN.com impact. You'll find a list of vetted, vetted organizations on the ground responding, trying to help. That's CNN.com impact. Coming up Sunday on State of the Union, I'm going to talk to the House Intelligence Chair, Congressman Mike Turner, as well as former Republican Congresswoman and January 6th Committee Co-Chair Liz Cheney. She's going to join me for her first media interview in a year. That's Sunday at 9 a.m. at noon Eastern here on CNN. Our coverage continues now with Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you Sunday morning. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.